Thank you for being here today. I suppose that Brother David would agree with me when I say that we tend to uh, get old and grumpy in our old age. And uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, we see things in the world changing and we don't really like the direction it's going. And uh, I suppose every generation that's ever lived has thought that as they get older, things are worse than they were when they were younger in the world. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not, I don't know, but, but we have that perception. And uh, that's kind of what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. Uh, <clears throat> when I was young, I didn't notice a great deal of persecution against Christians or against the church. Uh, it just, maybe it just wasn't obvious to me, I don't know. But I see a trend in that direction today. Most of the people I came in contact with when I was young were either members of the church or they valued a, a religious life anyway, at the very least. And so there wasn't a lot of persecution in that, in that way. And today it just doesn't seem like it's, it's quite that way. Uh, we don't yet endure a lot of physical persecution, uh, but uh, there's a lot of vocal persecution, verbal persecution, and in some instances it's uh, beginning to move in the direction of, of uh, physical persecution. But there are cases that have appeared recently that uh, kind of indicate that this is the direction that we're we're headed in. I don't know if you're familiar, but a few years ago, probably two or three years ago, the mayor of the city of Houston uh, put out a order that all the clergy in the city within the greater city of Houston area were to send text copies of the sermon that they were going to present to their congregations before they gave the, the sermon. And the reason that the mayor wanted that is because she wanted to oversee or see the topics that they were going to speak on, but because there were some topics that she was going to forbid them to speak on. And uh, they were going to be subject to a $5,000 fine if they went ahead and spoke on those subjects. Now, that didn't, that didn't pan out. Uh, it, got, it got crushed before it ever, ever got into place, which is a good thing. But anyway, that's, that's something that happened recently, and it, it uh, probably will happen again. Now, even more recently, just a few days ago, you might have saw on the news that uh, there was a, a uh, minister or pastor of a church in Canada who was, he had been arrested several times because he continued to uh, conduct services during the lockdown. Well, he was arrested again just a few days ago, like the first of last week, because he refused to mandate or get up in front of his congregation and force them, or tell them at least, tell them and, and hopefully force them to become vaccinated for COVID. He was arrested because he wouldn't do that. That's getting close to physical persecution there. Uh, so I think the time 
may be coming. I've talked to other people about this, and and uh, seems like a lot of people think that their time may be coming that this this is more frequent. So my question this morning is, how can we be prepared for it? What can we do? There's not a lot we can do about it, but we can be prepared for it. We can control our reaction to it. You know, in the beginning of First Peter. Chapter 3, Peter describes the proper conduct in various relationships. He explicitly speaks in the beginning about the relationship between a husband and wife. And he, he compares that to the relationship of Sarah and Abraham. And uh, he gives examples of, of how these relationships ought to be. And he, he goes on in verses 8 through 12 and describes the relationships that we should have with with our brothers and sisters in Christ and those around about us. And it's easy to see that he thought, he felt, and he was correct. These should be beautiful relationships uh, filled with kindness. That there wouldn't be any conflict. Uh, just a, a beautiful situation to consider. But then as he goes on, Peter turns to a little more darker, unseemlier subject. Uh, and that is the subject of persecution. But he does it in a way that you begin to realize that although it's not fun to think about that subject, uh, it's really necessary in some ways, can be necessary, to endure one in, t in order to enjoy the more beautiful and, and more wonderful parts of Christianity. <clears throat> the fact that the, the people that he was speaking to at that time those, those exact people that he delivers this epistle to were experienced persecution can't be denied. It's obvious. We see in 1 Peter 3 and 1, And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Now, we might think that Peter's saying here that if you're followers of that which is good, no one can harm you. No one can do anything to you. Uh, the problem is that Peter was speaking here of the, of the long game, if you will. He was speaking of, of the fact that there's nothing anyone can do to you to take salvation, to take a home in heaven away from you if you're a follower of God. He wasn't speaking specifically of the fact that on this earth no one can do you any harm. Uh, we notice what Peter said earlier uh, in his epistle in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoiced, though now for a season, if need be, he says, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So what we can glean from this scripture is there might be a need for this persecution. That's, that's hard to wrap our head around. But there might be a situation when, when it's needed. And he says, if need be, then you may be in heaviness for a time, for a season through manifold temptations, or through different, different various temptations, is what he says there. You know, now under normal circumstances, what Peter writes in, in verse 13 there of First uh, Peter 3 uh, is the norm, that we won't have to suffer when we do good, if we're followers of that which is good. Normally, that's, that's true. But we know also that there are times when Satan makes every effort 
to bring harm to those who are trying to follow the will of God. All you've got to do is think back to the, to the story of Job. And we realize that Job didn't do anything to deserve those circumstances. He was a follower of God. He tried to be a good follower of God. But there was a need. And that need was to prove to the world, to other people, and to Satan himself that uh, he couldn't do anything to, to Job's everlasting soul. He could harm his body. He could harm his, hurt his feelings. He could hurt his emotions. But there wasn't anything he could do to his, to his everlasting soul if it was saved by God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, the Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist the steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions which are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that he hath suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. So how should we as Christians prepare ourselves to overcome any persecution that comes our way, whether it's, it's a, a verbal persecution or a physical persecution, whether it's a small thing or a big thing? How do we prepare ourselves for it? And as we continue on there in 1 Peter 3, 14, we're going to stay right in there around the book of 1 Peter at least uh, a lot this morning if you prefer to, to read out of your Bible. But beginning in verses 14 through 18, I believe Peter outlines at least five points for how we can endure or prepare for persecution. The first point, he says, is you are blessed if you suffer for Christ. Now, Again, that's a little hard for us to understand. But the truth is that we are blessed if we, if we find ourselves in a situation that we suffer for Christ. In fact, Peter in his epistle stressed this twice, not just once. We see in verse, uh, or chapter 3 and verse 14, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Also, we can see it even clearer in 1 Peter 4, verse 14. If ye be approached, or if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Now, there's a couple of other things I want you to notice. Again, he says, Happy are you. But he says, For the Spirit of God, and of, uh, Spirit of glory, rather, and of God, Rest us on you. So, why are you happy? Well, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. God is with you. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, God is with you. The spirit of glory rests upon you. Notice what else happens when you endure reproach for Christ. On your part, he is glorified. Because of you, he is glorified. If you're happy when you deal with reproach. So you're blessed if you suffer for the name of Christ. The fact that those that are persecuted for righteousness sake and are blessed, uh, we find more about that in Matthew the 5th chapter, beginning 
uh, in the 10th verse. <clears throat> Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Now notice, for great is your reward. For so per persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Two things. Great is your reward and you're in pretty good company because the prophets were persecuted before you. That's pretty encouraging. You're in pretty good company if you suffer for the name of Christ. You're better off suffering for Christ than suffering for evil. Let me say that again. You're better off suffering for Christ than suffering for evil. Now that may not make much sense. But Peter wrote in verse 17 there of 1 Peter 3. For it is better if the will of God, God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. How in the world can it be better to suffer for doing good? How, how can that be? You know, if you're like me, you don't want to suffer for doing good. That's the most unjust thing that can happen to you is to do good and then suffer for it. That's just not just at all. So how can it be? Nothing upsets us more than suffering for something we think we did right. For doing good. But think about it in opposition to suffering for evil. If you're suffering for something evil that you've done, you're just getting what you deserve. That's what you deserve. It's nothing but an embarrassment to suffer for evil that you have done. But there's nothing embarrassing about suffering for good. Nothing. You can hold your head up. You know, as we saw earlier, that God is with you. There's nothing embarrassing about that. Suffering for evil is what will happen if you're not willing to stand up for Christ, though. That's what will happen. Suffering for Christ is temporary, but suffering for evil is eternal. We won't always suffer for Christ, but we will always suffer for evil. The second thing that Peter says is to sanctify the Lord in your heart. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 15. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does that mean? What does it mean to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts? Well, the word sanctify there simply means to set apart. So you set apart the Lord God in your heart. It means to make him the Lord of your heart, the Lord of your emotions, the Lord of your, your life, if you will, the God of your life. Make him the ruler over your own desires. Make him the ruler of the desires of others that might have an impact on you. Make him the ruler of everything. In other words, he takes, his will takes precedence over everything no matter what it is. <clears throat> Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. <clears throat> this is a, a key to facing persecution without fear. 
if the most important thing to us is the Lord God, then we don't, we're not afraid of, of what men may do to us. But if we fail to sanctify him in our hearts, then we're, we're afraid of what men can do. We're afraid of the threats that they make. Well, when you make Christ the Lord of your life, you don't fear what anyone can do to you. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Now that's his promise. That's the Lord's promise to us. He will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. But what do we get from that? So, so that. Because he will never leave us or forsake us, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You know what the word helper means? Helper. Not, not a lot of help there. But what I did find interesting is the tense of the word. What, what way is the word used? To run. Now, what does that mean? Have you ever needed help badly? You're in, a, you're in a tight place, and you really need help. Not only that, you need it right now. Who are you going to call? You're not going to call some person that you don't know very well. Maybe some person that you know will be slow in coming. You're going to call someone who will run, get there as soon as possible. That's who you're going to call. The sense of the Lord being our helper, he will run. He will do it as soon as possible. He will get there as soon as possible. That's the sense of the word helper. That's the kind of helper that we have. The third thing that Paul, Paul uh, Peter excuse me, talks about is uh, always being ready to give an answer of the hope that, that we have. We find this in the second part of 1 Peter 3.15. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You know, this scripture scares people. And it shouldn't. It shouldn't scare people at all. In fact, it ought to give us comfort. The reason it scares people is because they think it says something that it does not say. Notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say that we should be ready to give an answer for every single question that every single person might ever ask us about a religious topic. He doesn't say that. Now to have that kind of knowledge and wisdom would be a wonderful thing and I suppose it should be something that we strive for but that's not the point Peter is trying to make here. The point that Peter's trying to make is that we should have an answer to the reason of hope. Why do, you, why do you hope for eternal life? Why do you have hope in being a Christian? Can you answer that question? Just to explain the basic reason you have hope. That's not a hard question. The fact that he asked us to do this, to be ready always to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is within us means that that hope is visible to others. 
And someone might look at your life and say, I want what he's got. I want that. I want that peace. I want that understanding. I want that confidence. That's what I want. Can you explain to someone why you have hope? The reason for the hope that is in you. Even in persecution. Can you demonstrate the joy of having hope? 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are heavy, in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. To give an answer of the hope. You know, we have to do that in the proper spirit. We have to do it in meekness. You know, that has to do with our attitude toward other people, men. We should be humble, not arrogant. Because we assume that they're seeing that hope in us and that they want that hope for herself. Well, you can't have that hope. That's something I've only got. No. Jesus wants everyone to have that hope. We need to do it in the spirit of fear and our attitude toward God. So we should be reverent in it. We shouldn't be vain in it. We shouldn't just give it lip service. We ought to be serious about it. That's the way that we should present our hope, a reason for the hope that is within us. Peter also talks about keeping your conscience clean. 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience that whereas you speak evil, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you your good conversation in Christ. You know, if your conscience is not clean when people speak evil of you, what happens? When you don't understand that you've been forgiven and you can't portray and explain to people how you've been forgiven and the benefits of that, your conscience is not clean and people speak evil of you, what happens? Other people listen to those words and they say, well... I can, I can see that, you know, he's just that kind of guy. But when your conscience is clean, and you understand your conscience is clean, and you present that your conscience is clean, and you present the Word of God, and you help people understand that He is the reason, the Lord is the reason that your conscience is clean, then what can they do? The Bible says they can't do anything. The Bible says, in fact, they'll be ashamed. If not ashamed in this life, ashamed in the next life at the judgment. Together with good conduct and a clean conscience, it has an effect on those around about you. Another reason for your conscience to be clean is you'll be able to face whatever without fear. Whether it's physical persecution, whether it's Mental persecution, where it's verbal persecution, won't matter. You'll be able to face that 
without fear. As odd as it may seem, if your conscience will not allow you to stand before God, your conscience will not allow you to stand before men because God knows everything. Men don't know everything yet. God does. So if your conscience is clean before God, then you have no problem standing up to whatever men may try to do to you. On the other hand, if conscience will allow you to stand before God, what can man do? Think about that. What man on earth can do anything to you if your conscience is clean before God? 1 John 3, 21, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then, then have we confidence toward God. Finally, the fifth thing that Peter talks about, and we're going to talk about that conscience a little bit more at the very end this morning, so keep that in mind. But the, the last thing that Peter talks about uh, as far as enduring persecution or planning for persecution is uh, remembering the example of Christ. You know, he suffered for our sakes. We know that. That's nothing new. He suffered in order to bring us to God, 1 Peter 3 and 18, for Christ also has once suffered for, it, for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Also in 1 Peter 2, verse 20, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. Now, I had to read this about a half a dozen times for it to finally soak into my head what was being said here. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, for your wrongdoing, ye shall take it patiently? What benefit is it? If you're at fault and you're being punished for it, you get what you deserve. What glory is there in that? But the end of that, that scripture says, But if when you do well and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. This is acceptable to God. Now notice in verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was gall found in his mouth. <clears throat> Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. There's no doubt that Christ was suffered. He suffered. He was persecuted on our behalf. Now let me ask you a question. Can you read about his suffering? Can you read about his life? Can you understand all of those things about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection? Can you read all of those things and not understand that good can come from persecution. Sometimes it's just that way. Sometimes it has to be that way. Persecution can accomplish much good 
in the long run. It did with Christ. And we understand that. But can we understand it with our own life? We've been called to follow his example in 1 Peter 2 and 21. For even here and too were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. So we know that we've been called to live like he did in that, in that regard. In 1 Peter 4 and 1, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If we're suffering for Christ's sake, if we're suffering for good, if we're suffering for righteousness' sake, then we're doing good. We're doing what God wants us to do. And we have ceased from sin when we do that. Now this, this concludes basically what I wanted to talk about in preparing for suffering. You know, Peter speaks more on this subject of, of persecution in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter. We read a little bit of that this morning. Lord willing, we're going to talk about that at a later date. But so far we found this morning that uh, you're blessed if you suffer for Christ. You're blessed. You sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And you're ready always to give a reason of the hope, not for every question that's asked of you, but the reason of the hope that is within you. And you strive to keep your conscience clean. And you remember the example of Christ. You can endure a lot. You've planned well, and you can endure a lot when it comes to persecution. Now, getting back to the conscience as we close here, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. In this lesson this morning, we noticed the necessity, the value of having a good conscience. 1 Peter 3 and 21, Peter speaks of this conscience. And he says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of people misunderstand how you come into possession of a good conscience. It's necessary. We see right here in this scripture that it's, it's something to be desired. It's necessary. But how do you come in possession of a clean conscience? Do you understand that? Some believe that they can have a good conscience because of good works that they do. Things that they accomplish in their life. Things that are good for others. And I'm not going to bash that idea because it is necessary in this life for us to do good works but the Bible says in Luke 17 and 10 so likewise ye when ye have done all those things which are commanded you say we are unprofitable servants we have done that which is our duty to do when you've done everything that's been commanded you you're not special you've just done what you've been commanded to do You've done that which was your duty. You haven't earned a clean conscience. But you've just done what was necessary for you to do. Some believe that you can pray and ask God to forgive you and you can have a clean conscience then. Your conscience can be clear. And I'm not trying to be sarcastic here, but I've got a question. And that question is, if you pray for a clean conscience, how do you know if you've received it? How do you know? 
If that's all you do, how do you know that your conscience can be clean? I'm serious. If I pray to God for a million dollars and I want that million dollars right now and I walk out of my house the next morning and there's not a briefcase full of money sitting on my front porch, I know the answer was no. Or he didn't hear my request to start with, one or the other. But when you ask for a clean conscience and you pray for a clean conscience, how do you know whether you've received it or not? How do you know? My point is you can't know. There's no way you can know. How do you know that God has forgiven you? How can you know when your conscience is clean? Can you feel it? I just feel it. I just just feel it in my soul. Some say that. But Paul said in Acts chapter 26 and verse 9, I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You think he felt like he ought to do those things? I'm sure he did. I'm sure his training and his conscience at the time was clear. Because he thought he ought to do many things that was contrary to the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we're not saved by feelings. However, faith and obedience in the truth will produce the right feeling. We can be confident of that. But we have to do something to get there. Suppose, if you will, that you're on vacation in a foreign country. And you're having a good time and you're really enjoying yourself. You're relaxing and I call you and say, friend, I hate to tell you this, but your house burned down. It burned to the ground. Everything in it was destroyed. How would you feel? I suppose you'd feel pretty rotten, wouldn't you? I suppose you'd probably jump on the next airplane and come back home as soon as possible. Although you know there's nothing you can do, it's burned to the ground. You'd feel pretty rotten. But why would you feel if you pulled up in your driveway and there's your house standing there, not a thing out of place. Everything where it's supposed to be, nothing harmed whatsoever. How would you feel then? Probably be pretty mad at me. I lied to you. But your feelings were rotten even though I lied to you. Your feelings were wrong. It may have been because of something I said, but your feelings were still wrong. You didn't have the truth. So how can you tell by feelings whether you've got a clear conscience, where your conscience uh, is justified? You see, we're human. Sometimes our feelings are just wrong. They're just wrong. Sometimes our feelings tell us things that are not true. So how do you know if your conscience is clear or can be clear? Personally, I'd rather God would tell me. And then I know. And did you know that's what 1 Peter 3 and 21 is saying? The like figure whereunto it even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience. The answer 
You request for God to forgive you of your sins. You request for him to give you a clear conscience. What's his answer? He says when you're baptized, that's your answer. That's it. You have done what he asked you to do. And when you do that, when you're baptized, then he says by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. It is not you, not by any works you've done, not by any feelings you've had, not by any prayer you've made, but the answer of a good conscience is God answering your request. When you meet God's terms for salvation and you're baptized, God says your conscience is clear. Your conscience is clean. Then you know, not a moment before. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.